Tuesday, December the 12th. We're moving right along here into the the final days of 2023. So we're taking a little time to look back on the year that was and where we might be headed in 2024. Uh, you got to go back to 2022, February of 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine. So now, you know, let's say 21 months later, fighting continues to rage on. And honestly, um, you know, I, I'm not closely you know, engaged in what's happening on a minute-to-minute, hour-by-hour basis. But to me, just based on the news that I'm seeing, doesn't appear to be an end in sight, right? Have we moved any closer to a resolution on this? I don't know. Uh, Andrew Rasoulis has been our go-to resource on this conflict right from the beginning, and he joins us now to take a look at what we've seen in 2023 and maybe what we might anticipate in 2024. Andrew, thanks so much for being here again. I do appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Shake. Always to be with you. You know, in reality, Andrew, and I'm sure things have changed at some level, but you take a look at it big picture-wise, really did much change at all in, in 2023? No. no, you're correct, Shay. Uh, in strategic terms, if you look at the big picture, in fact, look at the map, the battlefield map. Yeah. And it, ha- it didn't move. It hasn't moved since December of 2022 when the Ukrainians pushed the Russians away from the city of Kershaw to the other side of the Dnieper River. Then the Russians established defensive positions, and they have held those all along the 1,000-kilometer front up until today. And the Ukrainians, in June, launched their, uh, their offensive, which was strategically aimed to break through the Russian defenses Ahead toward the south, toward the Sea of Azov, which is a roughly 90-kilometer punch-through, to break the Russians in half. And the critical strategic objective of that was to break the Russian land bridge from Russia proper to Crimea. The Ukrainians managed at most in certain sectors of the front to break through about 14 kilometers. It was a strategic failure. Yeah. Uh, yes, tactically they made some grounds, but strategically it was a failure. The Russians held the line. So that war of attrition that you and I have been talking about for a long time, just sort of this holding pattern, you just, you know, a meat grinder, I've heard people call it, which is just awful. We really have been at that state for a long time now. Yes, we are. Yes, we have been for the entire year. Yeah. And so today, as we're speaking, in terms of the battlefield, you have the Ukrainians have gone completely onto the defensive. They have a, a small bridgehead in the south, uh, southern part of the front of the river Dnieper. They've crossed to the Russian line, but the Russians have been holding them there. In the rest of the line, the, it's the Russians now that have the, what I emphasize, tactical offensive uh, attacks, not strategic, but tactical. And they are around this town of a they are actually inching. Every day you get reports, they've made progress. They've made progress. It's like mm-hmm. meters, meters to one or two kilometers. They're fighting in fields. They're fighting in small little villages. But again, they don't change the map, but it, but they are moving incrementally, uh, slowly, slowly. I saw some reporting this weekend, and I, 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 it was eye-popping. Um, estimates out of the United Kingdom, I think, saying that Russia may have lost as many as 320,000 troops so far, like orders of magnitude more than Ukraine. Does that add up to you? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, there's no official figure. So we're getting people who are doing estimates, and yeah. I'm not going to argue one way or another with the British intelligence. I think they, they probably got some pretty good basis for what they're saying. Uh, so let's just extrapolate from that. I think it's safe to say 
that uh, the Russians have sustained higher casualties than the Ukrainians. So I think that's a given. Having said that, though, uh, I think it's also safe to assume that both sides have sustained heavy casualties, which means the Ukrainians have sustained heavy casualties, mm-hmm. even though the Russians have more. So, the, But the net effect is the Ukrainians are suffering greatly in the people power equation. And again, you and I have spoken about this before. And uh, as we move to 2024 now, and the war for attrition continues, since neither are making breakthroughs, the Russians are not making breakthroughs, they're advancing a meter a day here and there, but they're not breaking through. So attrition is, is the order for 2024, at least in the early part of 2024. Both sides will struggle to replenish their forces. Uh, the Russians have their challenges. There are more Russians than Ukrainians, yes, but there are political limitations on what Putin can do. And Putin is running now in his election for 2024, yeah. March 17. That There are political ramifications to that in Russia. Even though he's an autocrat, he's not an absolute autocrat. So I just put that on the table. Ukraine, they, they are struggling to replenish their forces. There's all these videos coming up now uh, about how these sort of Ukrainian military, call them press gangs, if you will, are going into various places like bus stops, gyms, and so on, and basically uh, checking people's uh, ID uh, and, and actually hauling some of them off to recruiting centers, you know. So they're, ha- they're struggling to, to, uh, to people the army. The Ukrainians are. So, uh, just based on that, a couple things, uh, but in terms of battlefield advantage, if there is one to this war of attrition and the massive amount of losses, advantage Russia, they can sustain that kind of a situation much longer than Ukraine. Um, to some degree. I wouldn't want to overemphasize that because Ukraine, the Russians have their limitations as well. That's why I keep coming back to it. Yes, they... they I guess they have a slight advantage, you know, maybe 60-40. I hate throwing numbers like that around. But the Russians do have an advantage, but it is not a sort of a, a, without restrictions. The Russians have restrictions, and they are man- but they are managing their restrictions. I guess that's the other side of the coin, you know. But I'll give you an example. So Putin has, um, he's trebled the defense expenditures of Russia three times. He's gone down to 9% GDP, the highest expenditure in defense since the Soviet Union days. That money is coming out of social expenditures uh, under uh, away from education, away from, you know, social issues. So it's a guns versus butter. They can't have it all, and they are losing butter for guns. Mm-hmm. But he's got to be careful how he does that in terms of the Russian population. He cannot do that indefinitely. He is doing that today. But, you know, 2024, we'll see how things go. You, and I wonder, in terms of the election is coming up for Putin, um, he is definitely causing some hardship for the Russian people. Does internal support flag? Is it still there? Does it matter? How does what's happening within Russia affect what we're seeing uh, in Ukraine? In, uh, Russian support in, internally does matter. He is not an absolutist. Yes, he's not a Democrat, but but he is very concerned, and the ruling uh, uh, the ruling regime is very concerned about uh, the Russian popular view. They keep working on that. They, it is concerning. They can be overthrown. It's possible. So they continue to nurture, maintain their position of power. Uh, so they have to be. And, and yes, the polls, the Levada poll, which is considered to be an objective polling that we have of Russia does show that support for the war has flagged. It is still supportive, but the other side of that critical equation is there is now an almost equal amount of Russians that while they support, they want an end to the war, which okay. means they, they don't want to surrender, but they want the war to end. 
Gotcha. Um, Now, outside of Eastern Europe, of course, a lot of this war will be won and lost based on how the West, how NATO continue to support Ukraine. And we've seen some softening of that. Um, Where do you think that goes in the coming year? Uh, We know that Zelensky's in Washington today meeting with Biden to try and shore up the efforts to get increased aid for Ukraine. Uh, It's a tough, tough slog, especially in the U.S. Where do you think that goes and how important is it? Well, I can get extremely important, especially the U.S. one. And I'll just give you the play-by-play. About half an hour ago, uh, Johnson, Speaker Johnson from the House, uh, finished his uh, 30-minute talk with Zelensky, gave a very short press uh, conference, didn't take questions, and basically said nothing has changed, which means that Zelensky was uh, unsuccessful to persuade uh, Johnson to, to move the goalposts and approve uh, funding for Ukraine, uh, and that uh, the, the House Republicans remain fixed on the fact that unless Biden gives on the policy regarding the southern wall, the southern border with Mexico, uh, the Republicans will not approve the aid for Ukraine, nor Israel at the same time. So that ha- that that's where we are as of now. Now this afternoon, Biden is meeting with Zelensky. Now Biden will, of course, provide moral support, but he cannot authorize, unless he's got some executive stuff in his kitty bag, but basically they're running out. But the president cannot authorize more funding, additional funding, without congressional support. And clearly we know from uh, from the Speaker Johnson's view is that that's not coming any time between now and Christmas. So now the heavy negotiations will start uh, while they, were, they're con- they will continue, put it this way, between the Republicans and the Democrats into the new year as to whether the funding will come. It may come. It may come. Um, I was doing some reading uh, about how important it is that it does come, not only because of what it means to Ukraine. I mean, if if Ukraine loses on the battlefield, that's one thing. But what this also says and what it's being billed as in Russia is, see, we can outweigh them. They they don't have the will. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the stomach for it. We can do what we want to do. We've proven it. And there's other instances, other invasions that we can talk about with Russia, Syria, for example, uh, their involvement there and, and the pushback that eventually fades into the background. So Russia, in some ways, already claiming victory over the west because listen they can, they they can't they can't hang with us they can't keep up with us eventually they get tired and they give up and that narrative is dangerous right yeah well the, yes in the sense that this um uh, i guess what we see now is that uh there's a very real politique world out there and uh power military power still has a resonant effect however uh it must be clearly uh understood there's a big difference between, as you mentioned, Syria or Ukraine or other parts of the world than NATO. And NATO is Article 5, and it's not just conventional defense, it's also nuclear deterrence. And that is so fundamentally different than what's happening in Ukraine. And you hear the, the, those arguments, the... Um, you know, the, 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 the domino arguments that if Ukraine falls, then the Russians will attack Poland and the Baltic states. I don't, I think that's an over exaggeration because that brings us back to the Cold War period. In the Cold War period, the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact never attacked NATO between 1949 and 1989, uh, principally, I would argue, because NATO had the nuclear deterrence. We were in a mutual assured destruction situation vis a vis Russia, and there's no advantage between nuclear powers to fight any significant war. And so there I, there I, I, I draw a line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I say that outside of the NATO territories, yes, it becomes a much more dangerous world. Yes. 
But as long as NATO maintains its defense, and I'm sure after this, if there's a ceasefire of some sort, because I can't see the Ukrainians pushing back to the 81, 91 borders, which means there'll be some kind of eventual ceasefire once exhaustion sets in, NATO will have to really up its game and go back to a 19, you know, the, 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 the Cold War period, a redux, and sustain and put its lines together very strongly. It has them now, has the Eastern Flank commitment. But that's gonna, they're going to have to double down on that. Um, let's end it here. 2024, uh, do you have a crystal ball? Would you expect more of the same, or does this change fundamentally in the coming year? I think uh, it's more of the same, but more of the same will lead to uh, exhaustion, I believe. And this is, this is where I think the end game is, because uh, I don't think either side will have strategic breakthroughs. So there will be the grind, but the grind will lead to exhaustion. Wars cannot go on indefinitely. You even have a war, the, late, the longest war I can think of in recent memory is the, uh, the Iran-Iraq war, which went on for about eight years, from 80 to 88, without anyone gaining anything. It ended because of exhaustion. So this war, I believe right now, in my crystal ball, I could be wrong, my crystal ball says exhaustion will set in. Both sides will actually prefer to stop the fighting, have a ceasefire along lines that today, particularly the Ukrainians, would disagree with politically, but they may not have a choice if their army is exhausted and the people are exhausted. It's like a no-choice situation. Yeah, I think we get closer and closer to that all the time. Andrew, um, thank you so much for being here uh, throughout the course of the year and today. We always appreciate your insight. Uh, Thank you and uh, best of the holiday season to you, sir.